Corporate fraud works best in the shadows, behind corporate walls. How does the government bring these wrongdoers to justice? Whistleblowers. These are the stories of those who risk their careers to shine a light on allegations of fraud. Today on Fraud in America. our inaugural opening episode of Fraud in America. Uh, this is a, a deep dive, long form interview with uh, really the leaders of our uh, legal world and also the whistleblowers who've done uh, tremendous work in recovering our nation's stolen dollars. Um, and, and today we have the founder, the person who really uh, launched a thousand ships when it comes to the False Claims Act, the government's primary fraud fighting uh, weapon, uh, John R. Phillips. He's the founding partner of Phillips and Cohen, but much more importantly, he was uh, the key architect of the modern False Claims Act. He was the driving force uh, in getting the law revitalized uh, in 1986 and has been uh, the visionary for so many others in our practice, including myself. Uh, he's a, a member, uh, board member of Taxpayers Against Fraud. He was the founder of the organization. He has lived a tremendous life, a remarkable career of impact uh, across many different industries, including the legal world. We're going to get into all of that uh, today on Fraud in America. John, welcome to today's show. Good to be here. Good to be your first guest. So you went from small town, western Pennsylvania, coal mining town to California. What was it about California that appealed to you? Well, the weather was really good. Yeah. I mean, the (laughs) lifestyles. Young, you know, the exuberance, you know, in the Bay Area, especially, uh, it was uh, just, a, you know, in Berkeley, it's just a phenomenally interesting place. Uh, many interesting people there, both in the law school and the surrounding community. It's beautiful. So uh, during law school, was there a certain topic, a subject that really drew your attention during this time? Well, I always thought I wanted to do something interesting. You know, you're going to law school, spending a lot of effort and time. You want to think, is there some way you can be, most importantly, be interested in your work and whatever you choose to do was, you know, I always liked public policy. I think the, both Notre Dame had a very strong sense of public policy. So I wanted to do something of, of consequence. Well, in those yeah. days, when you're graduating, there was very few opportunities in what was generic term public interest law. That was really began in the late 60s and early 70s in terms of laws that Congress passed, you know, the Clean Air Act, the National Environmental Policy Act, the Clean Water Act, uh, to protect, there was a number of civil rights that uh, called upon the courts and gave the courts authority and power to enforce these important laws. But there were many, uh, many of these laws that weren't being enforced because there was no you know, government lawyers typically don't sue other governments. So who, if, if a government agency is not complying with the demands of Congress on, on building freeways, what are you going to? Who are you going to sue? Well, that's where we came. Our concept was represent unrepresented interests that are important to be resolved in the appropriately constituted forums, courts, and we would do that. So, uh, and this is the concept Ford Foundation really got behind. I think there were five firms that they gave grants to back in the early 70s, and we were one of them. You're and, referring to the Center for Law and Public Interest? Yeah. Is, is yeah. That- but they only gave us 50% of the funding that we needed, always forced us to, 
to be scrappy to figure out where we're going to get the other 50%. And Ford Foundation did that purposely, saying, we want you to set the example to the others how you're going to become self-sufficient. <laughs> but before that, you, you worked at O'Melveny, right? You were O'Melveny. Yeah, yeah. I, well, I, in terms of choosing jobs, uh, there wasn't much available. Yeah. The public interest work. You could go work in the U.S. Attorney's Office, the government, you know, and there was some federal public defender work just beginning or office of economic job, but not much talk of opportunity. And so not that there's so much, there's much, much more today, but the concept wasn't there. Most people, you know, went to work for private firms or um, there wasn't even much civil rights litigation at all, even though there was 64 Civil Rights Act had been in existence for already six or seven years. And so that was the concept, you know, private enforcement of public laws. We could do that. We have a Clean Air Act, Clean Law, uh, Air Up of Los Angeles, which was horrible, by the way. It was, and it's not being enforced. I mean, you have the county of Los Angeles. They're not taking any action. So we, in our firm, uh, looked at it and said, well, that's a case we can bring. And we have standing under the act to, to represent the people who are breathing the air. That was a, kind of a new concept, too. And... In our cases, we're always very strong because the violations were so severe. <laughs> so we got injunction after injunction, mandated them to put the whole payment plan together, how you're going to reach all the goals set out in four or five years. We were very involved in helping to fashion. But, but before that, so I, I went to O'Melveny and Myers because I thought I would learn something about working in a big law firm. I didn't want, didn't want it to be a mystery, but I quickly became you know, aware this would not be a permanent setting for me in the long run. It was just not as interesting or boring. It was, people were very nice, very high quality. It was a gentleman's practice back in those days. You think of those days, this was the biggest, the Melvin and Myers was the biggest law firm along with Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher in the West yeah. Coast. 105 lawyers. That was <laughs> the and they only had one offer. They didn't, you know, in those days, we didn't have branch offices. They never had a lateral hire of a partner ever when I was there. Now, all of that has changed fundamentally, <clears throat> as we know today. These these big firms in Melbourne probably has 2,000 employees around the world. And they're just real big, not a big business operations. And they're, you know, it's become much more a litigation society. And, and the stakes are very high for corporations. And they're and they're willing to put a lot of money when they're sued and protect the CEO. We sued many of them. Um, so litigation has just grown in terms of significance. And it used to be a service that you provided for your client, but the real was business, business advice. It, it took a dramatic shift in the 70s, 80s to the, remember the Alieska case, the Santa Barbara oil spill. Melbourne represented the defendants on both of those. And they had huge numbers of attorneys working you know, that's really when the practice started to change in, in the United States overall. So I started looking and, and came up with this idea of this public interest law firm. And I saw that Ford Foundation had expressed a willingness to take a look at the concept. And we got there early first, but we were very young. I mean, we were, we were just out of law school. <laughs> what impressed yeah. Ford Foundation the most was that we were willing to give up these, these very, you know, prestigious jobs as prestigious law firms to go out and take a risk because we didn't have the, the funds secured when I left to go out. That's, I had to spend a number of months trying to get the matching funds to, so we could get our Ford grant. And ultimately we, we did. So it was, 
know, we were, we were scrappy. We had to go out and, and always keep our, our minds on the bottom line about how we're going to fund the work that we do because clients don't pay our fees and foundations aren't going to be there forever. So the new concept of court awarded attorney's fees, we got, I got a law passed with, uh, with Howard Berman, who was then a, the majority leader of the state assembly that was like the all purpose attorney's fees bill. This was in 1978. Basically, if you bring a lawsuit under this law, 10, Court of Civil Procedure 1021.5, I remember it well. Uh, if, if you bring a law representing where your client doesn't have any personalized financial interest, but you're representing the public in hopes of, you know, make the, you know, like this Clean Air Act case or mm -hmm. others, that the court finds you, you were successful and you, you contributed to the betterment of the public good. I can't remember the exact term. Then, and only then, he, he shall reverse the fees. And the American rule is everybody pays their own fees. But in these cases, if you can establish that you've met that criteria, the court will shift the fees to the defendant to pay the plaintiff's fees. That's the, called the English rule, where you have that fee shifting all the time. And that was the beginning, that concept. And we've got, uh, in, in a number of laws we had uh, added, but we were, along with others, uh, suggesting that. But this is an all-purpose law in California. Uh, and anytime you go in and bring uh, a case that you, whether it's a consumer issue or environmental issue, if you're out there fighting for the public's uh, interest in enforcing laws that the Congress has passed, you should get compensated for that. Otherwise, they're not going to be brought. So that was very important. Always mindful we were of where we're, how we're going to keep it going. We even got the College of Pomona to pass a referendum taxing themselves a dollar each per semester <laughs> to, to go to, to our law firm. Wow, wow. All this sounds like the groundwork for the False Claims Act later. Right? You yeah. see <laughs> certain elements of the False Claims Act yeah. playing out. It's, I've always been impressed with your vision, John, but more importantly, you take your vision and move on it. A lot of people have dreams, but you seem to gamble on yourself. You take a risk and, and move on it. Um, obviously, the subject of this matter is the False, the false Claims Act. And uh, it was really my quest to figure out how we stabilize our funding or find new funding sources. We started in 1971. So, you know, we, we brought land use cases, environmental cases, civil rights cases. We sued most of the police and fire departments because they were all in violation. It was all very nepotistic <laughs> place where only, you know, relatives need to fly. What about the Century Freeway, your fight to kind of hold things up on the Century Freeway? Can you talk about that story? Uh, well, that was one of our very first cases. Uh, yeah. We were working with uh, a group up north, and they, they're trying to find a lawyer. Who? He said, California, uh, California, Caltrans, called Caltrans, it was building along with the, the feds. They're violating all the laws. They're violating the housing laws. They're violating, they're not doing the environmental analysis. They're not, I mean, about three or four serious violations because there was nobody there to hold them accountable. They came to us, would you be willing to bring this case? Well, this was our very first case. We filed in uh, February 1972. It was a big undertaking. And it was a class action suing to sh shut the whole freeway down, make them redo everything. And it was very controversial. Well, guess what? You know how long that case lasted? <laughs> 20, 24 years. 
So you're 30 years old. You're taking on some of the biggest industries. Well, well the judge, the judge in that case, uh, Harry Preggerson, he say when he said, you know, I got this case in my 40s to start out, and I'm moving into my 60s, and there's no end in sight. And I said, Your Honor, this is the first case I've ever filed. It's now 15 years later. I'm still here. I was. But it was an important case, and it shows you the power of litigation. And that's what gave us our authority, our power, is the litigation that we, by enforcing, uh, had a seat at the table and could figure out how you solve the issue. Take the Century Freeway, for example. We literally got injunctions, had everything shut down, but that in turn was not the solution. They had purchased much of the land, it left almost a no man's land. We had safety issues, management issues. So it was a very controversial. People were always were angry at us. We said, well, no, no, we're just trying to get the law enforced. So we went in and said, let's, let's work this out in a way. And we negotiated a very complex, but a, an amazing uh, settlement, which made them redesign the, the direction of the freeway or, or some of the places it was going. It was, it was to make it a more of a cut fill freeway. So it's submerged better. So environmentally, it's, it's more sensitive. Build the first rapid transit system in Los Angeles down the median strip as you build it. Is to take this from downtown to getting close to the Los Angeles International Airport. That was the important. They'd never done that. You know, he's always had the battle of the highway trust fund, keeping it only for highways and not mass transit. So we had the power in negotiating this to say, well, you want to do this and this, you've got to build this. And this is, you know, this within a long term transportation plan. We wanted to have something progressive. We got that. And then we had a uh, housing program because they had ripped out so many decent houses build the freeway. Under the law, they had to replace them if there wasn't adequate, safe, and sanitary housing available. And there was not. You had to have a study to show that. So we forced them to build over 5,000 units of low-income housing for the people who were out there. And, and, then we, and then we had a problem with managing it because Caltrans is not a good housing manager. So we created a public-private partnership, and they managed getting people in there. And so it's it was really helped rebuild the housing stock in the community. And then we had an affirmative action program for people who were disrupted by this. This went through Watts, Willowbrook, you know, the lowest income places of Los Angeles. So a high percentage of African-Americans and other Hispanics, minorities, but they don't get the jobs when the jobs come, these big construction companies. Come in. And so we had a whole system set up for it's called Cal, uh, Century Freeway, Century Freeway Affirmative Action Committee, and they recruited people who got trained, who got hired, and there were thousands of jobs created over the long construction period. It's about two and a half billion dollar project. So that's an example. You got to be patient. You got to stay with it. And that's an example of using the law to really get results. So, you know, you're there at every step of the way. So I can give you many, many case examples similar to that, where we, yeah. we not only just file the lawsuit, but you're in there and it gives you that table and the opportunity to deal directly with whatever the issue is. So even during this time, you took on like the gun lobby, right? We, we came across a, um, an interview you did with Alan Thick in 1983, which you pulled a gun out <laughs> in the middle of the interview. You can be walking down the streets of this city, of this town, carrying a loaded 45, just like the one I have right here, not loaded, but it's a Saturday night special. I mean, you know what the penalty is for carrying this gun? You couldn't tell that I had it. It's a 
$50 fine, the equivalent of a traffic ticket. If there's not a weapon yes, out there you know on the what? street... This weapon right here, this weapon by a child or anybody who can put pressure on a trigger can put a piece of lead 700 miles an hour through your head. I have the power right here to kill anybody in this audience or anybody sitting here with a mere pulling of the trigger. But yeah, uh, yeah it seems like you're picking a fight with every, all the big boys, the Goliaths during this time. Wow. That was, you know, I, one thing that always bothered me about America, and I can tell you as ambassador, I can tell you later what, what the biggest issue raised by Europeans about America is what is the matter with guns. But for me, the issue was just going back to 1980, 81. John Lennon had just been assassinated. And I always felt strongly about this, and I felt the time was ripe in California put an initiative on the ballot that will address squarely this gun violence problem we have in California and all over the country to set a model. That was the idea. And uh, so I, I took a year leave of absence. I cashed in my small amount of retirement I had accrued to take that year off. And I went out and put an organization together. We, we gathered a million signatures to get on the ballot. And that was a private effort. No money was paid for any of those signatures. Nobody does that anymore, but that was a Herculean effort to get a million signatures by volunteers. So we get on the ballot, and it's a big story but back in 1982. And it was very uh, high, you know, high public visibility. Uh, this is the first frontal challenge the NRA had had ever, really. And the concept was by, by passing this Californians, you, the voters, you're going to show the, the members of the weak need members of the legislative bodies that. The, Therefore, this too, and they're just being intimidated. That was the theory. Well, NRA came in, and we were running way ahead in the polls initially, but they spent over, then a record amount. I think it was seven. We had virtually no money to spend, and they lied about we're going to take their guns away. They had these commercials, people breaking into a defenseless woman's bedroom. Which, you know, it's just so it, it lost, and it lost by a sizable margin. So it was a real defeat. And the worst part about it, in addition to losing that, and it was the hardest year of my life. I think I never worked harder for a worse outcome. <laughs> and in addition to that, Tom Bradley, the mayor of Los Angeles, was on the ballot, the same ballot. And I got, and I knew him pretty well. I was chairman of one of his commissions, and, and he, I got him to embrace and endorse the initiative way at the beginning. Helpful and useful. And he was a very strong contender. And, and expected to win, and he was running ahead in the polls up to the day of the election by six points. So he thought he was pretty secure, but I worried. And this is where this, uh, <laughs> this Bradley effect uh, concept uh, came about was, well, when, when pollsters take, take polls, people lie about whether they're going to vote for the average. They're going to say yes, but they're really not going to. That was theory. And here in this case, Bradley's up by six going into the election, and it's very close election was actually called for by the chief pollster in California, got named Mervyn Field. But then, late in the night, up in Bradley's suite, we were both in the same hotel. We had lost and been called our initiative early on, but he was called the winner, and it was getting close to midnight, and the raw vote totals coming in. And, and God, here comes uh, George Duke Mage, and he was running against him. They were neck and neck, and then he went slightly ahead with 97% of the vote. <laughs> and he, I remember this, so in, in the, his suite, oh, everybody thought he was going to win. And he said, are you still standing by that prediction? Somebody asked him, or calling it for, 
He said, well, I'm not sure. Now, I think it was that gun control initiative that really threw off our calculation because theory being you've got a lot of rural voters uh, who are, you know, while they're out voting for their for their guns, they're going to vote against the black guy running for governor. So he lost on one of the closest elections. I think it was the closest election in history. And I really was, uh, many of my friends said, ah, oh, you should never have done that. Look what you've given us now. You know. A terrible government. But here's one funny story. Now we run something else. Yeah. Uh, during the uh, Obama campaign in 08, I, I get a call from uh, LA Times reporter, whom I know. He's doing a story on this whole Bradley effect because it came up again with Obama. You know? so they got a lot voting for Obama. He says, I read all those stories. It wasn't the Bradley effect, it was your initiative. Why you lost. <laughs> so I, always, I get these calls over here. So I said, well, look, anytime you have a close election, only one thing can make up the difference. 100%. Yeah. But I said, you know, I know Tom Bradley took to his grave. He was long dead. The fact that my initiative cost him the election. Was, he, he told people that. But what always bothered me is I never had George Guzmanian, who won, thank me for getting him elected governor. <laughs> and it's kind of a joke. He said, oh, no, no. He, he, I just talked to him yesterday. He said he never would have won without your initiative. I said, oh, my God, that's the last thing I <laughs> Confirming my little joke. So, so I, I know I've always been involved in guns, mm-hmm. um, trying to get a handle on it. I can tell you this, as Ambassador Italy, it, it, the most common observation, what is wrong with America's crazy fascination? They have no idea, Americans don't, how we, we're looked at when you have these Usually disproportionate numbers of people because they don't have guns. You know, when I tried to get that initiative passed, there were estimated to be 60 million guns in circulation in America. Now it's about 350 million. And so now it really is out of control. No other country has mass circulation of guns, guns available, military style guns. I mean, they think we're not so we are. And I, I would, I was, you know, Obama was very strongly in. Favor measure, so I was just speaking for his policy, but I, I would never apologize for America. I said, well, I can't defend it. There's no, there's no way we could defend it. We have to change it. We can't give up. But look where we are today. The shootings have just occurred in two weeks' time. Just unbelievable. Okay. So, so, John, af- after this, you just keep plowing ahead, right? You, you, uh, a few months later, you're uh, talking to Senator Grassley about. <laughs> well, vibe. I came back. Yeah, right. I, I came right back to, after, to the program. My That's year better. was up. I didn't have any masks. That was my, since I yeah. had my job to come back to. I, <laughs> right. I, and then I was really, really devastated. I felt I really failed. And, I, you know, and, and, and I started immediately looking about where we're going to get resources to keep the firm going and researching in areas like uh, well, nuclear power is a topical issue and foundations are really to support. Uh, investigations and lawsuits, and we had a, a number of those. So I, I'm, I'm just doing research, and I come across this old relic of a law that I had never heard of, called the False Claims Act. And I started reading it, and said, "Oh my God! I, can you believe this? You could be a private attorney general. You can, you can represent the government, and you can get the comp percentage of what the government gets back, and you can root out fraud and." But, of course, what happened is the law was completely dormant for 75 years because it's very restrictive 
court, Supreme Court decisions and other decisions. And it was just not functional. It didn't ever achieve its objectives. It was past the administration of Abraham Lincoln. That's why it was called Lincoln Law to deal with the fraud against the Union Army. But it would never was an effective, effective tool and really was completely invisible. Nobody, including me, had ever heard of it. Uh, and I said, boy, I looked at it carefully, and if I can make some adjustments and changes or recommend changes, this could be an amazingly powerful tool. So we, um, what was I just saying? Yeah, uh, you, you were saying it, it, it took you a while to, uh, oh, after you recognized I saw it go through, do I figure out amendments, make them as discreet as possible. We still want to call it the Lincoln Law. Yeah. And because uh, this age, what, you know, or one of our great patron saints. Uh, and you want to also emphasize here that we're trying, we're, we're, everybody's against fraud against the government. This is, and, and so I, I'm trying to pitch both the argument as the drafting that what's going to sell. And these were, were different times. Uh, you know, we've got to make it bipartisan as, as best we could. Because uh, it, it was, it was, Everybody should be against fraud against the government. Um, but um, so anyway, I got it together and I figured, all right, where am I going to take this law now? Who would be a receptive candidate? And of course, Chuck Grassley, who I did not know. All in fact, I think we're political opposites probably on most issues. But he had been the most outspoken critic of fraud being committed against the government. And there's been no recoveries. Where is our Department of Justice? He would read the stories about the Defense Department scams with $500 uh, screwdrivers and toilets. And this also drastically was railing about. And it was also very protective of whistleblowers who were beginning to be. So I went to him. A, he was Republican. The Senate was uh, controlled by Republicans. And he was on Judiciary Committee. And he was, he was the right person in terms of his prior identification of the issue. So but his staff. And then I went. They're, they're very interested. And then we went to Howard Berman, Congressman Howard Berman. I remember I mentioned earlier, he was Democrat, yeah. Grand Democrat, liberal, uh, California, Los Angeles Democrat, a very smart man. Yeah. And uh, he, as I mentioned, he's the one that passed the attorney's fees legislation in California that we worked on together. I said to Howard, Howard, this is a great bill. You got to get behind You're on judiciary too. He didn't know Grassley. They didn't know each other. He had his instinct was, I don't want to meet like he's like the far right. You get, no, no, you get you get formed. This will be an unlikely partnership, and, and and show from the beginning this is bipartisan. We're all against. It. So, I introduced them over in Grassley's office, and we both had the bills. They both at that meeting agreed that they would introduce the package that I had inter- introduced to them. One in the Senate, one in the House, and that we we're off and running. That took uh, almost two years, about a year and eight months, I think, until we from the introduction of it to getting. Uh, actually passed it. The goal was to keep it under the radar. Don't promise anything you're going to save the world with this. And specifically, don't target any industries. For example, don't call this is going to be the, you know, this is going to be the defense procurement fraud protection, or it's a healthcare, uh, Medicare fraud protection, something like this. You're going to immediately attract the, those industries that will come at you. It was a very general reference anywhere the government spends money. And so as a consequence, I think those industries that were and did get affected by it were asleep at the switch and didn't appreciate the impact. We weren't about to point where the switch was or what they should be saying. So we were going through fine and we, and we were getting Republican support. And the real key uh, step was getting it past the full House, the full Senate Judiciary Committee 
And Strom Thurmond, remember Strom Thurmond was yeah, chairman sure. of the judiciary. We had these hearings conducted by Grassley and the subcommittee. It, went, it all went very well. We had great witnesses. But then all the industry people got up at the, the, the vote. There were uh, holds uh, yeah. being placed on, on the law by all these uh, all Republicans coming from you know, all defense industry, health industry. So Grassley, to his credit, he went around each of those senators because they were all Republicans, and said, why do you have a hold on my bill? What would you have know, a problem with? Would you want to change it? What? They, of course, had nothing to say except the industry. They said, hey, please stop that bill. So we, when we finally got into full Senate you know, judiciary, there, it was a motion to table it. And said, so, well, I think we've had, this is strong firm, we've had this fully ventilated, debated subcommittees, and we've had good votes. We're ready to vote. We're ready to vote. And we voted it out. And once we got out of there, we were pretty confident we'd, we'd get it through. And then Reagan, you know, it, it entered into a situation where it was in a, what they call a pocket veto. Congress will expire within 10 days. What, what is it? The rule. And, and you, he hasn't signed the bill. Uh, then it's, it's, it just dies. And otherwise, it becomes law. And that was a real threat because he was delaying, delaying. We couldn't understand why. So I remember getting on the phone, calling out all my reporters from the New York Times and Washington Post and CBS and ABC, because my wife is in that industry, and I know a lot of these yeah. folks, you know me. I said, there's a story here. I think I think it's uh, Weinberger, you know, Secretary of Defense, yeah. realizing this is going to embarrass a lot of his defense contractors, and they're out trying to put the squeeze on this. And there's a story here. So they all started calling the White House, saying, <laughs> but what's he going to do? Is he going to sign this bill or not? It's down to the last day or two days and, and Lisa Hobbleson who was Grassley's top aide was calling me I said what's happening what's happening? we were about to lose the whole bill in a matter of hours and finally they, they called back the, the Reagan administration people and said hey there's no story here he's going to sign it and it was the last day and he did sign it on Air Force One in Georgia and that became law that was but that was just the Amazing. beginning of course you know it was once you get a law passed nobody knows it's passed how do you get educated yeah. public? Here's this law. Here's how it works. How do you tell them it's going to be effective and, and it really will work? You're taking, you know, you a whistleblower, personal and professional risks. But you don't know if this law is going to work. They just say it sounds good. And are they really going to get people get some some real money out of this? Well, it took about six years to get to a point where we can point to, you know, first of all, here's the law. We got articles in the Wall Street Journal and New York Times featured. But 60 minutes came with a, a few programs just to educate people yeah. and whenever you see the a case that's filed you want to get people see that case and they learn about the law oh i could do that too i didn't know and that's how we would get most of our early calls what about the earliest calls right so uh, oh. you know 1992 national labs happens but prior to that you know it's all kind of theoretical how, how do you get clients in those early early days well, good question. And and I, but the people who would call in and see, I was in on some local news or at, about the law and how it worked. And they said, oh, what a nice man. Would he, would he be ha willing to handle my divorce? <laughs> Crazy <laughs> call. You know, I said, well, so we weren't getting much good. But hey, the first case was a very uh, sophisticated doctor from uh, Paul Michelson, his name from La Jolla Scripps Institute. And, uh, he came to us, and it was a small case, but it was significant. And it was his own doctor group. And they're all they're partners in this doctor group. But there's one doctor that was upcoded. 
routinely all sorts of surgeries that he'd been doing to eyelids because he had seen his files whenever his secretary uh, was gone and the other doctor's secretary who worked for him said, hey, you know, you're not coding it the way Dr. X coded it. He gets more money. He's like, he does that? That's how he codes? So he went out, looked at all the files, and saw routinely that he had done that, and he trained with us. It was pretty black and white in terms of those. It wasn't big. So I, I said, well, we would, we would do it uh, because it was a good case. Clearly, you had the paperwork that would support that. And we estimated three dollars $400,000 of single damage or something. Anyway, we filed it, and it was the publicity that that case generated in the LA Times and around ophthalmological community because many doctors were doing the same thing up close. And there, but the grace of God, go out, they see when this guy gets nailed. <laughs> people did read about that case, and people came to us. And a second big client, a guy in the medical labs, was from San Diego. And he was well, he saw this practice of his lab. He was, you know, they had a pretty decentralized system of laboratories around the country, and you go compete for doctors to get their business. And he was a supervisor of a district, but he saw many of his doctors leaving to go to the National Health Lab with another competing lab. Couldn't figure out why. Then he figured out why, because they had gone to their doctors and altered the order form such that the doctor was only able to order two tests and not one when the most commonly test was was uh, authored, something you would normally look for diagnostic, where they, they would, it's like, and Medicare pays on a per test base, like 20 bucks or so for the test. Then they decided to add an HDL cholesterol page that you couldn't get the other one without the HDL cholesterol, which a doctor would not normally order, especially for old, older patients. So thousands and thousands of times a day, when doctors were on that order form, organized the most commonly ordered test, Medicare would be paying twice as much as they would be paying for HDL. Cholesterol, it didn't cost any more money for them to give the results of so comes to us, and I said, well, this is a great case, but uh, I, 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 I can see the Justice Department saying, we're not going to, we don't see the fraud here because, hey, the doctor ordered the test, they checked yeah. the box, tests were done, results were given, nothing's, no one's alleging faulty tests, or, you know, what's the fraud? Well, the fraud is they deliberately altered the structure of that form to create a system that would medically induce doctors to order medically unnecessary tests. Because you could just ask doctors, they wouldn't order. If you gave them a choice to combine them both. And then they, and then after that, it's before we filed the suit, they added a third test that you would never order as, a, as an initial diagnostic. It's only after some spike or some out-of-scale out reading to get back. So instead of $20 for every patient, thousands a day, Medicare, which should have paid, you're paying $60. Roughly that amount. This is how this thing works. Well, and other uh, competitors are seeing that they're getting away with it. But the year before they changed the forms, I think they had something like three percent of all the ferritin tests in the in the against Medicare in the country. After they changed the form, they had fifty one percent, and nobody noticed. <laughs> nobody noticed. So, and, you know, that case, the guy went to prison. Which is very, very rare, and it really seems to kill. And this is the power of the false sense. Well, we're, we're, this is a good case. We're taking it all the way. Well, that throws fear into the hearts of the Justice Department because if we come back and get $100 million, 
and they took a pass at it, he's going to yeah. call it, hey, who needs you? Who needs a Department of Justice? <laughs> this shows you how well this works. Yeah. So I, so Justice did put somebody else at my strong urging on the case, a young lawyer who was very aggressive, very smart, and uh, we worked it together. And that was the first big settlement. There was an ability to pay $100 million. They should have paid a lot more. And one last story, when I had, that was a huge, just how, you, how word gets around, a huge story in that industry. And every year they would have their annual conference uh, at, the, at, the, uh, at the hotel here, uh, in the Willard Hotel here in Washington. Like 400 people would show up. And you had virtually 100% of that whole industry from the country. And this had just come out, this settlement. So it, was, it just sent shockwaves <laughs> through them. And now they, they put a, a quickly put a panel together with me, uh, the inspector general, and wow. somebody else. I can't remember who. Uh, we're going through talking about the case and what was involved. And remember, many of these parties are doing the same thing, and they know it. And yeah. uh, one guy raises his hand to the IG and says, "You know, you know those uh, uh, those are pretty gray area regulations. We're, you know, we just want to now you've clarified." Very clear, and we will certainly you know, conform our conduct to make sure we follow your new guidelines and your clarification. But would you would you go after us for things we did in the past when it wasn't clear? <laughs> this is the IG's response. Well, let me put it this way. I said, you know, I've been out robbing these banks. That's what <laughs> and I realized I shouldn't be doing that. That's wrong. So I'm going to stop. Well, you if those <laughs> there was an audible gas in that room, and that wow. those parties in that room paid multiple billions of dollars to settle the claim. Came about through one guy's case that we thought we hadn't done it. Uh, it would practice would have continued, and it really saves. So this is a, an area that illustrates the deterrence effect because you can go and see the Medicare outlays for for lab tests. And just go month to month here, and, and they, they, what they projected initially when Congress passed it was actually happening. But it's going like this, and when we hit the announcement of the case and the settlement of the case, it started going like this. So this is the saving. The whole industry stopped doing it, and it's this delta between here and the good. That's the savings, and billions and billions of dollars have been saved over the last 32 years. It's on now. And so that's happened in so many different industries over oh, the years, right? I mean, it's amazing. The pharmaceutical industry, medical device, of course, defense. Uh, so the one thing we didn't touch on, you know, during this time, so the, the law was revitalized in 86. Uh, this national labs case you talked about happened in 92. So during this six year gap, at pretty well common knowledge, the Justice Department wasn't exactly excited about false claims act, right? There's matter of fact, a former attorney General Barr wrote a memo arguing whether or not it was even constitutional right is it were those that is that the, does that describe the environment during this time well i would say william barr was a virulent you know negative uh critic uh, very emotional too he wrote these memos when he was the office of legal counsel and, and about how guns constitutional it is and, and on and on and in, a, in a very unlawyer like emotional way because I we thought it was kind of a concert. We're not surprised that the, the industry is going to try to attack it. And uh, and the big the biggest attack was uh, that this separation of powers or a number of arguments yep. to make. But when we got 
to the court. The court did finally take this case up, but it turned down similar cases before about whether the act is constitutional. I'll remind, remind you, imagine what people in my position or lawyers who are doing these, you're, you are now, this is in 2002, you're now 10, 12, 15 years into these cases that you filed and you've invested huge amounts of money. If the right. Supreme Court were to take it and declare it unconstitutional, you're, you're out of business overnight. Yes. All your accounts received, all your, whatever you in 15 years invested, gone. So the stakes, this is why it's a risky proposition Huge. to get into this business. The stakes are very high. And, and what saved us is the originalist theory. You know, Scalia, it was, a, you know, what did the original founders start? And I knew we were going to be in good shape. Well, I felt good. When the first question at the court hearing, when they heard the case was, Sandra Day O'Connor asking, this is the key question, well, isn't it true, counsel, that this law was, existed, this whole concept when the Constitution was passed, that same, that same Congress passed laws with this thing? And you think they didn't intend for this to be constitutional? So how are we today, 112 or 200 years later, yeah. supposed to say it's unconstitutional? But it was, it was a very serious Lots of money was expensive industry started that. They started right away when the law, once they saw the law was on the books. Um, they had Carolyn, it was a woman in Stanford, had a great law firm in LA who was spearheading the whole, she's very smart, the whole yeah. challenge all over the country. And, uh, but we, we followed them around and uh, filed in taxpayers against fraud, of course, with Ramiki's briefs and, and have been keeping them on the defensive. You know, they, they would go around and visit different senators, and they weren't, they weren't saying it was a bad law. They said, we like the law. We just want to make it work better. We're trying to improve it. Improve the law, right? It's always with killing them. As we would come right behind them, well, let's give you the real truth. And it worked. It worked. Yeah. We never came close, I think. Of course, Jeb, you've been there for so long, and you were the master at the legislative uh, effort. To protect the bill and defend the bill and improve the bill. And we got to say, with taxpayers against fraud leading the, the board for this, against these challenges, uh, we're, we're, in, we're still in good shape. And, uh, and if without TAF, I don't know where we would be. Well, John, that, that was one of your visions too, right? You started taxpayers against fraud. You recognized there was going to be this attack coming from the other side, right? That was your original concern. Yeah. I did. I felt. You know, our strategy again was under the radar. Don't call too much attention to it. And uh, get out the other side, and then you've got to work to figure out how to get it, you know, et, et, et cetera. And I knew once once we did, if we did get it, because there would be immediately opposition by those very industries that now realize how vulnerable, they, you know, maybe drug companies, hospitals, doctors, you know, defense contractors. I mean, so many, you can just, anywhere the government spends money, so you go and look outlays from the budget and look at the categories where they're spending so much you know, brilliance that uh, you, you can see, you know, uh, opportunities there. And these industries aren't going to lay over, lay over, roll over. Um, mm -hmm. They kept coming back at us. But I have to say, uh, every, especially every time the, the fundamental underpinnings of the law were being challenged, um, TAP, TAP came through and we, we succeeded. So here we are, 35 years 
after the, the act was revitalized, uh, probably going to exceed $70 billion recovered here in, in the next few uh, months. Industries have been changed. Um, my wife is a physician. She can't get a, a, a pen, much less a Super Bowl ticket out of people like that. <laughs> they used to throw around in kickbacks. Uh, though the world <laughs> is safer. Um, some still a lot, of, a lot of battles happening in the courts, but the when it comes to, to fraud in America, the False Claims Act, without a doubt, has been the primary vehicle in, in fighting back on it. Um, John, in looking at back over the last 35 years, are you surprised what's happened? Yeah, I mean, I often say, uh, if you had told me back in 1986 when this law was just being considered and voted upon, that this going ahead 20 or 30 years where we are now, that it would increase from what was roughly 25 million a year that they would get on average from the entire country, which is five, six billion. And that's, again, that's just the tip of the iceberg because you're not counting all the deterrence that you're getting is 10 times, eight times that. If you had told me oh, that, I'd say, wow, that, that would be much more than I would ever expect, 85%, which means that 85% uh, that money wouldn't be would not be recovered in you know in the, the net cost of the government and of course the two the two important points to raise about why the law what is objective policy objective was to bring to the surface all the information of fraud that is beneath the surface is like an iceberg ninety percent will never find it through our investigative techniques or whatever you need people who have direct and personal access to a lot of this information or others competitors who really know this industry uh that's that's important so you if you don't have the information you can't act get the information to the surface so it becomes public and then then second and equally important is add private resources to pursue those claims and that's where we the whistleblower and the lawyers come in uh because the government doesn't have unlimited resources. They, they have very limited resources. And I can give you chapter and verse of cases where even though they joined, you know, we had to do 90% of the work because they, one big case that, that we had uh, where the defendant has a big hospital chain, the defendant was saying, this case is too big to try. You, you don't think you can do it, and we're not going to settle. You're going to take you years to try this. Uh, of course, you're, US, you're in the Justice Department. You have so many cases, and all of a sudden you say, uh-oh. They have unlimited resources, of course, and the stakes are very high for them, of course, so they're willing to spend it, including to protect their chief, chief executive and others who are in the spotlight here. Uh, so we then said, yeah, we'll, they came and said we need 22 full-time equivalent lawyers to do the case and we can only provide two i said we'll provide one and we did and we incurred a lot of fees and costs took 10 years to get that case resolved because one good example it did the resolution of that case resulted in related cases filed because of the initial filing this case 1.75 billion dollars uh, that we would not have recovered for the Treasury, and they would have continued those practices. And by the way, that's another area where you can see out disbursements for cost reports was reduced too over time because many people were going. It's such a complicated area. You know, the, the biggest risk that you took before is if you were submitting bills to 
Medicare that you're entitled to, and you very you manipulate the systems so you put things you're not entitled. To. Basically, that's happened one form or another. And that if you if you don't get caught on audit, and almost ninety eight percent of them you won't nothing. If you get yeah. caught on audit, you get a full refund. Uh, you have to refund. So you had an interest-free loan. That's all that was at risk. So if you're a CEO and you're, well, everybody does it. We, look, we can increase our, our $200,000 per hospital per year if we do this. And do, that's what drives them uh, to, to do that. And if we didn't have the, A, the resources, because the government surely could not have done it, they would never have pursued this case. And they told us they were on the verge of dropping it when we came in. Uh, taking over some other lawyers be- because it's too complicated because they couldn't try. But we were, were there. We had a great team of five law firms. Uh, and that just that shows you the real force and power of the most, at its very best. Enforcing, uh, leveraging private resources. Yeah, John, so this is, um, the you know, I learned this from you, right? This idea of, of you got to get public knowledge about what's going on here. We have to uh, educate the public, not, not only about the False Claims Act, but what's possible and, and inspire and encourage people to step forward. And likely there's very, uh, there's people listening to this program today or watching today's show who are every day going to a job where they are working for a company that's at odds with their ethics, you know, uh, and, and they're thinking about what can they do or what should they do? And these are potential whistleblowers. Um, what would you say to those people? Well, I would, and we get, of course, many people who come to our firm, they do their, their research, and, and you got to be honest with the client. You know, what do you say to them, and what are the risks you know, associated with it? And you, you know, you, we want to make good judgments for you, and you have to be informed of all, all the associated risks. But if you have good facts, and if you are willing uh, to take the risks that we can identify, uh, we'll evaluate the case and say, we think based on evidence that we can develop, we have seen thus far, that you'll have, you know, an excellent chance of some recovery in this range. You have to come up with an assessment. What's realistic? And all these, well, he's got people, clients come to us and they just have completely unrealistic expectations about how they calculate the damages and how much they're going to. Yeah, you got to, you, you don't want them to, enter into this the process because once you launch it, it's very hard to pull it back. That you really can't. Once because it's filed in federal court, the government served, has the life of its own. You're gonna live with this case, you the client, for a long time. And it's gonna, gonna could affect you very much as we know this is a good news for the whistleblowers, the False Claims Act and these amendments. The bad news has been historically all the price, the personal and professional prices that people have paid. And why would you come out and take a risk like that when there's absolutely nothing good, only bad that can happen to you? You can get fired. You can get blackballed. You can get divorced. You can, you can lose your house. You, can, you won't be able to work even in, in other industries. It, and we've had clients who've gone through that. And we've had clients who've died because of the pressure. I mean, one particularly, a doctor said, boy, you've got to relax. And he, and he uh, I'm no question about it. He died because the intense pressure over a sustained period of time. So the risks are substantial and you have to be informed before you make a choice. And we, you know, when we counsel our clients, 
uh, ups and downs and say either we'll represent we'll represent them if it's a good case. You know, obviously, but it's got to be a certain threshold. We have limited resources too, and all the resources we put into cases that don't go anywhere, obviously, that's that's back on what we can what we can accomplish. But I think we've gotten really pretty good at um, assessing the value of a case, how to perceive it, and and we and others too have long-standing relationship with the Department of Justice and the work for many years. And I think overall, the relationship's a solid one. I mean, some people at the Justice Department have different views of the law. Some are more supportive, some are less supportive. But that's life. Such an inspiring story. I hope everybody uh, got a lot out of today's conversation. You know, just a recap, you know, John uh, was looking for a way to make an impact uh, came across a law, said, well, maybe I can get Congress to amend this, bring it back to life, then uh, started moving cases, recovered billions of dollars, changed industries. I mean, it's just a, a career and a life of, of impact. And John, I just want to acknowledge you for not only having vision, but acting on it. And it's a real inspiration and an honor uh, to talk to you today. I really appreciate you taking time to, to speak with us. Well, thank you, Jeb. And I'm glad you're there as president of Taxpayers Against Fraud. You, you've done such a great job, and I'm glad you returned to the organization. We still have a lot of work ahead of us to protect this law and to, to expand it in other areas. Great. I appreciate that, John. Uh, so next week, uh, make sure you tune in. We have a, a very special guest who's going to be joining us uh, from the government, uh, longtime director of the fraud section at the Department of Justice, Joyce Brando, will be joining us uh, next week. John, thank you so much for joining us. And if anybody has uh, any questions, make sure you reach out to us. The show notes have links to everything that's relevant to what we've talked about today. Uh, but until next time, thank you for joining us on Fraud in America. If you believe you've witnessed fraud against the government at your job or want to learn more about these important laws to combat fraud, visit fraudinamerica.com. On our website, you can find whistleblower lawyers, blogs from these expert attorneys, and more. On fraudinamerica.com, you can also find a transcript of today's show, show notes, a way to contact our team, and a way to chip in to make sure we can keep bringing you the latest on fraud. This episode was edited and produced by Rachel Brooks, and our theme music is by Connor Chaos. A big thanks to our staff and researchers of Jeb White, James King, Emma Bass, Jackie Damar, Kate Scanlon, Brian Markovitz, and Max Boldman. You can learn more about them at fraudinamerica.com slash team. Fraud in America is a project of Taxpayers Against Fraud Education Fund.